Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. This episode of our podcast is all about other California podcasts. Meta, right? We'll start with Brie Bertolaccini, who hosts WDFM, the podcast of the Walt Disney Family Museum. We have so much audio of him telling his own stories that we actually harnessed that audio. This was a way through the podcast to be able to listen to Walt Disney himself kind of describe the periods in his life. Then Dawn Davis of the Desert Lady Diaries podcast tells us about falling in love with the Mojave Desert and interviewing other women who wouldn't fit in anywhere else. And Olivia Allen Price of San Francisco's Bay Curious shares a few of the most memorable questions her show has helped answer around the Bay Area. The bison have been in Golden Gate Park for more than 100 years, and back when they were making the park, the whole idea was to sort of recreate and honor the wild, wild west. And what better way than to have a herd of bison? That's all coming up on California Now. Nearly a century ago, years before Mickey Mouse and friends would become global icons, Walt Disney made a home in California. The story of both the man and his monumental impact are told a few ways through the Walt Disney Family Museum, located in San Francisco's Presidio, and through the museum's podcast, WDFM. Here to tell us more about all of it is host Brie Bertolaccini. Welcome to California Now, Brie. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, you know, you wear a few different hats at the museum, and I know podcast host is just one of them. Before we get to the show, though, could you tell us a bit about the Walt Disney Family Museum and what makes it special? Yeah, the Walt Disney Family Museum is located in the Presidio of San Francisco, California. It's a really unique area to have a museum, um, but it goes through the history of Walt Disney during his lifetime. It was created and co-founded by Walt's daughter, Diane Disney Miller, and she wanted to show the world who her father really was as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a businessman. We take you through his entire life and you get to make up your own decision on who Walt Disney was as a man. So how did the museum come to be in San Francisco? I mean, Disneyland, after all, is in Anaheim, right? So so why San Francisco? Well, the Disney family really wanted to be involved in the creation of the museum. And at the time, they lived in Napa, where they have their winery Silverado Vineyards. And Diane Disney Miller had always been asked, you know, why won't you write a book? And she thought that the museum really was her book. And they were really involved with the creation of the museum. And I think it really stands as a unique place of Disney history to come and visit to. So something for everyone in California. Okay, so now who visits the museum? The museum has a host of lots of different types of visitors. Our main type of visitor is Disney fans, of course. Um, If you're interested in Disney and Disney history, this is the place to go. It's the ultimate mecca. Um, But, you know, people who are interested in history in general, Walt Disney, his history spans, you know, through World War II, even World War I. Um, So there's just a lot of different aspects that, you know, bring people in. So it sounds like it's it's not, you know, strictly a place for for theme park aficionados, right? I mean, that you really get to learn about the man who was Disney and kind of like the the far-reaching history that Disney has kind of, you know, accumulated over all these years. Well, there definitely is some theme park history to be had. We have a miniature um, size model of Disneyland. So it's our model is called Disneyland of Walt's Imagination. So it spans that whole history. So there's definitely a lot of that technology, the theme park 
um, technology that we explore in our gallery. So you can definitely learn a lot about theme parks um, by visiting, but there is so much more in our galleries to be explored. We have the largest collections of Academy Awards outside of Hollywood. We have a special Oscar being um, one for Snow White and the Seven Dwarves that was uh, given to Walt. And it has one large size statuette followed by seven smaller uh, statuettes that cascade down. So, you know, there's a lot of really interesting artifacts that help showcase a little bit more about what was happening in the world. Like I had mentioned, World War II, we're actually doing uh, an entire retrospective on Walt Disney Studios and World War II, where they contributed about 90% of their studio efforts into the Allies' um, forces. You mentioned that scale model of Disneyland. Um, How do visitors respond to it when they see it for the first time? Oh, it's an instant hit. Our last gallery is a huge gallery with this big um, and massive ramp down. So you really get to see just how big it really is. And you see the, the model of Disneyland at the very bottom. And it's always the what people say that they come back to see again and again, because you can look at it for hours. I've done it. (laughs) I've looked at it so many (laughs) times um, and you still find new and exciting things. And that last gallery really exemplifies the last 10 years of Walt's life. And he was doing so much um, in the theme park industries and film. Um, You know, the last bit of his life, he really was full steam ahead. And you really can see that in that gallery. And you mentioned the Oscars. So like you, you said that it's the largest collection of Oscars outside of outside of Hollywood. Uh, Walt actually won 32. He still holds the highest record for the amount of wins. And in our collection, we have 26 of those awards on display. Now, I know you're currently closed because of COVID. Hopefully your reopening isn't too far down the road. What kind of virtual programming have you been doing over the last year? Like what are you especially proud of? Well, I've been especially proud of how the museum has handled our closure. We immediately went into kind of hosting a variety of virtual programming for people of all ages. So there's something for everyone. And we've hosted two virtual community art exhibitions, which have been super special. They feature the work of artists from really around the globe. And we've set up this virtual space where you can walk through our Diane Disney Miller exhibition hall and kind of pick out and experience artwork there. Um, We've also been creating a wide array of kind of engaging virtual content. Um, So we have what's been a really popular series, the Happily Ever After Hours series, where we kind of interview people in the animation industry. So like directors, voice actors, and animators. Um, And then we also have our story time that are family-friendly programs, as well as our animation classes. So children of all ages who are interested in learning animation um, can learn through our Zoom with our studio instructors. So we've had so much content <laughs> and it really helped <laughs> us with our closure. It pushed us to release our WDFM mobile app. So you can really experience the museum fully digitally with our virtual tour and kind of highlights video as well as audio tours that are accessible um, and translated into a bunch of different languages and you can also listen to our podcast there. Of course, exactly, right. And that's really great. And I was going to I was going to say like it seems like on top of that that the podcast would, you know, really be a, a a real treat for people who have been craving something Disney during the pandemic. So, you know, tell us a little bit about it. 
Yes, our WDFM podcast, it's been around for a while. We recently revamped it as we're looking for more ways to engage with our guests virtually. Um, Something that we're really proud of is that in the museum, when you visit in person, you get to hear Walt Disney's voice guide you through his own life. And we have so much audio of him telling his own stories that we actually harness that audio that's exclusive to the Walt Disney Family Museum. And there's about 20 hours of audio. It's not all in the museum, but this was a way through the podcast to be able to listen to Walt Disney himself kind of describe the periods in his life. Or, you know, if we take a deep dive on our particular topic, he usually has something to say about it. So it's been Mm. really fun. I think you're really fortunate that you have like this huge archive of material of Walt Disney himself actually telling the stories that you can weave in and out of your your podcasts with, you know, I'm sure like interviews with people currently working on projects and stuff. That's that's really great. I mean, it's like it almost gives you it gives like that podcast format a really uh, rich experience for people. Yeah, it was something that I actually started diving into when a long time ago, around six years ago, and I was a volunteer, and I just kind of started transcribing these interviews and just knowing the kind of types of content that's in there. There's a lot of birds singing outside, and it's it's really a casual interview. And to hear Walt just kind of talk pretty casually about his experiences, his kind of thoughts and feelings about certain films or certain projects that maybe didn't have box office success during his lifetime um, is just really special to hear. So Bree, what, what's an episode you've been working on recently that you're excited about? Well, our most recent episode was on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and I just think it was a really interesting look at the film and the history that combined a lot of more recent historical findings. So, um, for instance, a book by the historian Mindy Johnson dived into the woman of Walt Disney's animation, and she uncovered so many amazing um, female artists and influencers that impacted each and every film at the Walt Disney Studios that had previously not been reported on or included in the history. So we included a lot of that, for example, in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Dorothy Ann Blank, who was one of the first story artists who really helped to mold Snow White's character. So it's things like that, that kind of combining what we previously knew that's in the museum and kind of adding a little bit more flavor to it. So this particular episode I found to be a little bit more enlightening. Do you know of any of the other films that you're going to be doing any deep dives on? Well, we definitely are planning to do one on Fantasia. I think it's Hmm. such a unique film. A lot of technology was created uh, for that film, and that's kind of how HP printers and their technology, uh, it's tied to the film Fantasia and the sound system that was created. And so that one for sure. And kind of um, more as a cumulative conversation, want to talk about Walt's package features, a lot of unsung films that you'll probably want to revisit on Disney Plus after we chat about them. (laughs) (laughs) Like fun and fancy free, make mine music. Um, But you know, of course, all of the Disney favorites, Disney fan favorites like Dumbo and Peter Pan and Cinderella will, of course, be talking about. Yeah, it sounds like and it sounds like you have a huge treasure trove of topics and material to mine for the podcast. So it sounds really exciting. Yeah, I mean, anything and kind of everything. He had such a talent for creating teams. um, And so there's so many different topics that is so perfect for a podcast. So it's been really fun to get diving into it. I just wish I could, you know, do it all at once. <laughs> so many great topics. Well, I look forward to, to hearing uh, your future episodes. And, uh, uh, you know, this has been really great. Bree, thank you so much for joining us on California Now. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Brie Bertolcini is marketing manager at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco's Presidio and hosts the museum's podcast, WDFM. As always, we'll have links to all the places we talked about on today's episode and lots more on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. When I'm doing research for this podcast, I'm reminded of the state's massive scale and incredible variety. I'll be scrolling around looking for inspiration and come across a jaw-dropping redwood grove or a ruggedly beautiful beach or maybe a picturesque winery, and then it'll hit me. I can experience all of this in California's amazing northwest corner. This place is truly north of ordinary, featuring four counties and 10,488 square miles of adventure. Here you can explore Pacific Ocean beaches, ancient redwoods, majestic mountains, crystal clear lakes, and wild rivers, as well as over 100 wineries and breweries. And it's a great place to bring the dog. Think whales, wineries, and woof walks. To plan your North of Ordinary road trip to Del Norte, Humboldt, Lake, and Mendocino counties, visit northofordinaryca.com. That's northofordinaryca.com. My next guest fell hard for California's Mojave Desert, so hard that after a visit to Joshua Tree a few years ago, within months she'd packed up her life and moved there. Now Dawn Davis has a podcast dedicated to exploring the lives of other women there. It's called Desert Lady Diaries, and the idea is half-hour conversations getting to know women of all generations who might not fit in anywhere else. Welcome to California Now, Dawn. Thank you. I'm almost tearing up when I heard you say how hard I fell because I did fall hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. And you're living there. So that's amazing. Um, You know, you you kind of describe having a kind of wake up moment the first time you visited Joshua Tree National Park a few years ago. Would you tell us that story? Sure. A couple of friends of mine and I decided to come out here in April of 2016, having never been. And there's two grades that you have to travel up when you come to Joshua Tree from the 10 that runs east-west. And the second grade, it started to feel as if there was a string attached to the very top of my head and someone was pulling it (laughs) because I was just sitting up straighter and straighter and straighter in my seat and looking around and catching glimpses of these Joshua trees that I'd never seen in my life. Mm. And there was just a, a feeling all weekend that my senses were heightened. I was really paying attention to the landscape. Um, we'd go out to eat at Crossroads Cafe, and I was, you know, looking at the people that were in there eating. And it was just, I sensed that there was something here for me. I can't describe it any other way. And that there was, I was being called to come. Yeah, really. I mean, it almost sounds like you were, you're discovering this, this place where you belonged. I mean, do you, do you hear similar things from people you talk to there? Very much so. People that come in, uh, women that I talk to on the podcast who have been either came here for the first time and felt that immediately or because of their circumstances couldn't pick up and move but visited on a regular basis for, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years before they finally actually made the move. And just felt that this was a place where they were inspired, uh, could uh, express their creativity in ways that they had never expected. And um, yeah, it just, that's the way it happens. 
So what prompted you to create a podcast about this part of the world? Well, kind of funny, initially, because I am a voiceover for a living, um, I thought, wow, I need something that I can promote my voice with and maybe get more clients. <laughs> and um, just one day in the shower, I had this thought of, oh, you know what? I've been meeting so many cool women. Maybe I could interview them on a podcast. And it's really turned into less of a vehicle to promote my voiceover business and more of a vehicle to um, let people hear what moved women to move here to the desert and what they're doing here. Uh, some of them have been here all their lives, uh, moved away and come back. Some of them, like me, have moved and uh, have decided to make it their home. And it's um, it's also, I find, a community building experience because mm -hmm. a lot of people who listen are local and I get a lot of feedback like, I know her, but I didn't know that about her. And just so there's some uh, community building, I guess you could say, that's going on in the background that wasn't really even my intention when I started. You know, there, there seems to be like a quirky side to the desert and to the many, you know, people who live there. I mean, do you think that's a fair assessment? Absolutely. I think that um, there are a lot of people who come out because of the open space and you don't have to interact with anyone if you don't want to. Um, I think there's a lot of people who come out because, you know, maybe they have a past that they're just trying to escape. And out here, it's easy to do that. Uh, I think other people just have a sense of maybe not necessarily fitting in in other places, but they come here and for lack of a better expression, they can let their freak flag fly and <laughs> just kind of do whatever it is they want to do, whether it's creatively, whether it's expressing themselves through their fashion or or, you know, other ways of expressing themselves. That's really nice. I'd really like to talk about a few of your favorite episodes, starting with one where you had a surprising amount of fun. Oh, gosh. Um, well, the one that I think had this most fun was um, Lisa Ray Black. She's a musician who lives out here. And as we got to talking, I mean, she has a uh, tribute band. It's called Hammer of the Oz. So they do a lot of Led Zeppelin and mm -hmm. Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath sort of uh, stuff. And uh -huh. as we got to talking, she was talking about growing up in, um, I think it was West Covina and taking her guitar lessons from this very serious, like flamenco guitarist. And then she was talking about one of her neighbors that she went to high school with who would drive her to school, who had a band and through the course of conversation discovered it was Tommy Lee. Oh. And <laughs> I am a huge, I was a huge eighties metal girl. So <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> That's funny. So she's had a lot of encounters with a lot of big names. Um, so that that was a lot of fun. That's really great. You never know, you never know who you'll meet, right? I know. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> you never know what'll come out. Right, right. What's an episode that seemed to really resonate with listeners? There was uh, Melanie Buck, episode number 12. Uh, it resonated because Melanie's personality was just she just lit up a room anywhere she went. She was the children's librarian here in town. And I say was because about six or eight weeks after the podcast, she passed away. Hmm. And that was about six weeks after having her son, who she talked about while she was on the podcast and how oh, wow. excited she was about that. But she also, she loved this desert. And her and her husband, Paul, had a beautiful ranch out in Landers. And... um she was just a light in this community. And when we lost her, it was devastating. Um, so, and that really brought home for me the fact that 
you know, initially I was like, yeah, I'm doing this podcast. And someone, a couple people said to me, well, you're, you're capturing a place in time of people who are living here in the desert. And I said, yeah, I guess when she passed away, I realized that it is much more serious than what I initially started. Yeah, you're preserve. You're definitely preserving, uh, you know, people's stories and their histories. It's pretty amazing, right? And and all of the episodes right now, I have an agreement with the Twenty Nine Palms Historical Society. Every single episode until I guess I decide I'm not going to do it anymore is in their archives. That's really amazing. That's really powerful. I mean, Thanks. how does that how does that affect your feelings about doing these interviews? Oh my gosh, it is. It feels. I feel very privileged, let's say that. Uh, just the fact that someone would take, I usually book them for an hour and we have the interview, just that one-on-one -on -one time, as busy as people are doing their everyday things that they you know, make the time to sit down to be a part of it is an honor. I mean, your podcast is about people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, ours is about travel. Right. Um, let's talk about some of the places I should go next time I'm down in the Mojave Desert. Say I'm just... You know, starting my day in Joshua Tree, where should I go? What should I do first? Uh, well, if you come in on a Saturday, I would recommend hitting up the farmer's market. There's a bunch of fresh flowers and vegetables and a lot of other interesting things. There's some crafters that have some work there, um, homemade soap that's made locally. And there's a great bakery there called Boo's Organic Oven, where you can get some pastry and something to munch on. Um, and then maybe get in your car and get into the park. Uh, if you have limited time, I usually recommend people start either at the Joshua Tree entrance uh, or the 29 entrance and just take that drive through to the opposite entrance. If you start in the Joshua Tree entrance, you could make as many stops along the way as you proceed to 29 Palms. And then when you land in 29 Palms, that visitor center's there, as well as a place called the 29 Palms Inn, where you might get uh, you know, a drink or lunch or dinner, depending on what time you drive through. And uh, the Old School House Museum is also there, which is run by the 29 Palms Historical Society. And they have great exhibits and um, it is, an actual schoolhouse that was moved from its original location hmm. that was used by homestead children as 29 Palms was being built. Um, and then there's murals out in 29 Palms as well, which I love murals. When I lived in LA, I would find myself, you know, if I could find a parking space, if I saw something like down an alley, I'd stop and go take a photo. Right. Um, right. So they have a huge, they did a huge mural project. It's You can find it online, oasisofmurals.com, I think it is. And the murals depict everything from the indigenous uh, peoples of this land, like the Cahuilla and the Serrano, hmm. uh, the homesteaders that were prominent in the community in the 1930s, and also uh, the military component because there's a huge marine training base out there in 29 Palms. Are there any kind of natural vistas that you would recommend that I hit that I really shouldn't miss? Well, everybody likes sunset at Keys View in the park, so that's beautiful. Or you can go to the uh, West End through the entrance where the Black Rock campground area is in Joshua Tree National Park. And if you have a good vehicle that can ride through the sandy soil, you can get to the top of Eureka Peak and also have a beautiful sunset up there. What's something you love to show visitors at Joshua Tree National Park that's not something, you know, everyone necessarily knows about? Uh, a lot of people like the Barker Dam Trail. And I don't think people... Uh, take full advantage of it and take it all the way around. And there's an interesting like water trough back there mm -hmm. because this area was used to move cattle 
early on. And it's just something that if you came upon it, you'd be like, what is that? <laughs> and then the further you go along, there are there's an area where there are actually some petroglyphs from the indigenous folks who were here. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. How long is it? Um, it's only a three and a half mile hike. That's not bad at all. Yeah, but I think people get to where the water is and depending on what time of year it is, depends on how much water is in it. They get to that point and look at the view, which is beautiful. And then they head back to the right, parking lot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about how far is Death Valley from where you are? And is it something that's worth a drive over to? Oh, gosh, yes. I did it actually uh, November of 2019. A friend of mine from here and I drove out there. It was actually very different than what I expected. It was more rocky and less sandy. And it's definitely a driving, like less of a hiking kind of park and more of a drive to a particular location and check out like Zabriskie Point and those sort of things. Uh, but we camped in Panamint and then we got on the road, but we went in the wrong direction <laughs> and ended up in Lone Pine, <laughs> <laughs> which is up by Mount Whitney, which wasn't terrible. And we had lunch in that little downtown, which looked like someplace I'd like to go back and explore much more. And then um, when we left, we were camping by Furnace Creek and we went out through the exit that took us to Death Valley Junction, where the Amargosa Opera House and Hotel is. I mean, you know, sometimes when these road trips, you know, they don't go to plan. I mean, sometimes those are the best one, you know, the best uh, little offshoots. And, you know, you go off on a tangent and you, you meet new people and you have new experiences that you never thought you would. Exactly. You just never know. And they had the best nachos I've ever had <laughs> at, um, I think it's called the Crowbar in Shoshone, which was also on our way back to Joshua Tree. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Now, you run a gift shop in Joshua Tree. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your business and also uh, the people you meet there. Oh, my goodness. Um, I opened in November of 2019. The shop is called Soul Connection. And the reason it's called Soul Connection is because I definitely had a soul connection with this place, as many of the people that I talked to that live here now did. And I think there's also uh, an opportunity to provide something to someone who may have that soul connection, but just can't pick up their lives and move here. Right. Do you know? Yeah. So I carry a number of uh, local artists work from pottery, oil painting, photography, cyanotypes, um, books. We have a number of authors who live here who've written poetry books, et cetera. Um, and I mix that in with your traditional souvenirs, keychains, magnets, mugs, t-shirts, and then some quirky stuff like UFO t-shirts. Um, what else do I have in there? Some spiritual things, some tarot cards, uh, some crystals and stones. So it's a, an, nice variety of things that you can find something to take home and not so touristy that locals won't find something there perhaps for themselves. Oh, that's pretty cool. I, and But you probably get so many travelers coming through and, you know, travelers love to get advice from locals. Do you ever get asked for recommendations for what to do or where to go? Absolutely. People are always looking for where do you like to eat? <laughs> um, because, you know, when I go to a place, I typically like to have what we call a locals experience. I want to experience as, as if I was living there. So I can't blame them for asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> when, really, right. When they want to know. Um, and I think, and, and it helps us also share maybe more information about um, respecting the desert, respecting the night sky, respecting the quiet, uh, remembering that you're in a community where people live. It's not just a 
quote unquote tourist attraction. Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So we're able to impart that information, which is helpful. Uh, it really is helpful. And there's no better source for people to find out, you know, what the real deal is than talking to locals. People actually live exactly. there all the time. So, so, right. so where do you send people who want the inside scoop? Oh, my goodness. Well, it depends on what they ask. Some people just ask for, you know, like, where do you like to go and eat? So I'll send them to La Palapa in Yucca Valley because that's kind of not on the main highway. It's a little off the highway. Um, and they are doing outdoor dining right now. And so, what's, and so what's, what do you love about it there? I love the Cadillac Margarita. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but they have, no, they have great traditional Mexican, or you can even just get like pasta with shrimp, which I do sometimes. Um, it's just, uh, it's off the beaten path. You don't really have to wait a long time to get in as you would say in anything here on the highway 62 strip in Joshua tree. So, you know, we have to wrap up soon, but before we do, um, I'd, I'd love to hear your advice for people who are curious about the desert but maybe they're intimidated by the extreme temperatures or maybe the solitude. What what advice do you have for them? Oh, gosh. Well, I think like anything else in life, you just have to try it. If it's something that you think is intimidating, I think uh, you just have to come out and face it and give it a try. And I believe that it will grow on you. Right. Well, Dawn, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Dawn Davis hosts the podcast Desert Lady Diaries. You can find more online at desertladydiaries.com or listen wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we'll have links to all the places we talked about on today's episode and lots more on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. For people who want to become better acquainted with the quirks of the Bay Area, the podcast Bay Curious is an amazing listen. It's produced at San Francisco NPR member station KQED, and the idea is simple. Listeners send in questions, and each weekly episode answers one, with help from a team of reporters led by host Olivia Allen Price. She's produced more than 200 episodes on everything from tasty food to history to the paddock full of bison in Golden Gate Park. Welcome to California Now, Olivia. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. So, you know, the podcast weds your personal fascination with the Bay Area with that of your listeners. Um, how did it all get started? Well, when I moved here seven years ago, I knew nobody. I mean, my closest friend was in Texas. So <laughs> I would spend a lot of time walking around the city when I would get off of work and just kind of exploring on you know my evenings and my weekends. And it was just immediately a place that I knew was home. And every nook and cranny fascinated me about the Bay Area, um, from the sweeping views of the Bay and, you know, the history, the architecture, the diverse neighborhoods neighborhoods, just every little piece of it I just fell in love with immediately. And about this time, um, as I'm kind of getting to know my city and really exploring it, at KQED, we were trying to figure out how we could bring the audience more into our reporting. So not just, you know, broadcasting out to them, but letting them become a part of our stories. So the idea kind of got going like, hey, what if we asked the audience, you know, what do you want to know about the Bay Area, its culture, or its people? And then I would kind of work 
work with that audience member to to find the answer to the question. So we had kind of the opportunity to give this a try as an occasional radio series, and it went over really well. The audience loved it, and so pretty soon we turned it into a podcast, and we've been going for four years now. Yeah, and I love the fact that you're reaching out to listeners to ask you questions because they probably come up with really, you know, great ideas or and things that you never even knew existed. So, like, how many listener questions did you start out with? And can you share one or two that, that have stuck in your mind? Yeah, yeah. So when we first launched the program, we actually just sent out an email to every member of KQED. And we immediately got back 300 questions, which is actually a lot of questions, (laughs) considering no one even knew what we were going to do with these questions. (laughs) They had never heard of me. Over time, we're still collecting questions. We're still answering questions on the podcast in you know, our email newsletter on social media. And at this point, we're looking at about 5,000 questions in our queue. So I'm That's not sure. incredible. Wow. <laughs> if we'll get to all of them, but we're, we're working our way through. <laughs> That's a lot of weeks, a lot of years. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so let's talk about a few of your episodes. I mean, we mentioned the bison in Golden Gate Park up top. How did they end up there? The bison have been in Golden Gate Park for more than 100 years. And back when they were making the park, the whole idea was to sort of recreate and honor the wild, wild west. And what better way than to have a herd of bison? So they've been there for a really long time. Um, at this point, they are it's an all-female herd. Uh, they found that having some, some males around, they would sometimes get aggressive with each other or sometimes with humans. So it's an all-female herd now. Um, and one thing that's pretty cool is they were actually the, the current herd, which has been replaced a number of times since the 1800s. Um, but the current herd was a gift to Senator Dianne Feinstein from her husband. Um, he gave her that gift in 1984. Um, and a lot of the bison that are around today are descendants of, of that gift. Hilarious. So. I mean, it kind of makes you wonder, like, what anniversary year is bison? I know, I know. I, I got to find out and tell my husband because I wouldn't mind having a small herd in our backyard. <laughs> you know, since this podcast focuses on travel and places you can visit, um, can you tell us about an episode or two that showcases uh, a Bay Area neighborhood or landmark that's really noteworthy? There is a landmark that is near and dear to my heart, so much so that I actually have a Halloween costume in my attic of this landmark, (laughs) and that is Sutro Tower. Um, I think of it as kind of a locals landmark. Uh, It's a broadcast tower. If if you've not been to San Francisco before, it's a broadcast tower that kind of has this unique hourglass shape, and it doesn't get the kind of love from tourists that the Golden Gate Bridge or the Ferry Building might, but I love going sort of near it. Twin Twin Peaks is sort of where you might go that would be near it. Uh, and you can you can go to the top of this, uh, you know, it's one of the tallest peaks in San Francisco, get a cool view of this really quirky broadcast tower that has a super cool history. And you get almost a, like an entire view of San Francisco and mm. a huge amount of the bay. San Francisco is a small city, right? It's seven miles by seven miles, not that big. Um, And you can see almost every inch of it from the top of this view. Um, And I think it's one of my favorite places to take people maybe at the very end of a trip around the city because you can kind of look back and see almost everywhere that you would have been that day. You can see Golden Gate Park. You can see the Golden Gate Bridge. You can see the Ferry Building. And it's kind of cool to like just piece the whole city together in your mind with this really beautiful aerial view. 
<laughs> That's really cool. Um, now you've also done a few episodes on food, um, mm-hmm. from sourdough bread to rice aroni. We love to talk about food on our podcast here. Um, what's what's a favorite of yours uh, from that category? I love our episode about Irish coffee. Have mm. you had an Irish coffee? I I'm sure I must have, but not in a really long time. So I hadn't actually had one until we we made this episode. It's coffee, sugar, Irish whiskey, and cream. And now Irish coffee was invented in Ireland, but it was widely popularized at a bar in San Francisco called the Buena Vista Cafe. And it's near Fisherman's Wharf and Ghirardelli Square. So it's near a place that if you're visiting the city, you might be at anyway to see some of the other attractions. And the story goes that a travel writer for one of the local newspapers had been to Ireland, had tried this Irish coffee that was made really only at this airport Mm. in Ireland. And he and the bartender got to work late one night trying to recreate it. (laughs) And they had a really hard time because on in the Irish coffee, the cream has to float on top of the coffee. And it takes there's some technique to to kind of get it so the cream floats and they couldn't figure out that technique. The bartender gets so obsessed with trying to sort of solve this puzzle that he actually travels to Ireland, talks with the bartenders at the airport, figures out kind of how it's done, brings it back to the United States, and ultimately ends up kind of starting this sort of cocktail sensation. The Irish coffee was hugely popular in the 1950s. Um, And to this day, this bar is sort of known for their Irish coffees. Um, They usually make about 2,000 a day, they told us. And it's really cool to go and watch them make them because they'll make them like 10 or 20 at a time. Um, So they really have it down to a science, and it's just fascinating to watch how quickly and expertly they can make them. And they're also just so, so delicious at this bar. I've had them, um, you know, I had my first one there when I was working on the story and have since tried them at other places. And far and away, the Buena Vista Cafe has the best. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect place to kind of like go for dessert after you've had a nice meal out somewhere. Totally. And if it's foggy, which it often is in San Francisco, you can like sit in the bar, look out at the fog and have this like delicious, warm cocktail. It's just marvelous. And, and you know, you know, San Francisco has like a, a very proud drinking history. Uh, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's a real bar town, right? So this kind of like falls right in, in line with that. Yes. We have a lot of cocktails that got their start here. The Martini, um, you know, got its start potentially in San Francisco or in nearby Martinez. Um, There's also an old drink called the Pisco Punch, which was super popular sort of in the Gold Rush era. Um, Not so much today, but that also got its start here. So lots of lots of drinking. So 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 here's something that that even longtime Californians from outside the Bay Area probably don't know about. What's Dutch Crunch? Dutch Crunch. Okay. (laughs) So Dutch Crunch is a sandwich roll that is super popular at a lot of Bay Area delis. Um, And it wasn't necessarily invented here, but again, like Irish coffee, it was popularized here. Um, And it's sort of got like a cult following here. Um, It is a... It is, I mean, basically just like a a sandwich loaf. What makes it unique is it's covered with this rice topping um, that gives it this like really aggressive crunch. Hmm. And it originally is from the Netherlands. Um, They call it tijerbrood. I think I got that right. Tijerbrood? (laughs) Sounds right. Tiger bread, basically, because it kind of looks striped. Um, But it, it definitely has a following here. And people who, you know, come from even other parts of California come to the Bay Area 
see this on all of our deli menus and are like, what is, what is Dutch crunch bread? What? <laughs> so it definitely has a, a bit of a, a local tie. And so all of these things you're sharing with us right now, they came out of your Bay Curious podcast, right? Yeah. So these all started as questions that people submitted. Uh, and then we kind of dig into, you know, usually finding the answer to the question with, with the person who asked it. So before we wrap up, let's do one last episode that changed something for you, like, like maybe opened your eyes to a place you now want to visit all the time, or maybe changed how you see or appreciate something. Okay. So <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard this, but there is a oft-repeated um, I don't know. I don't know what you call it. There's an oft-repeated line among San Franciscans that says, "Don't call it Frisco." Right. That it is I, not cool <laughs> to call San Francisco Frisco. It's also not cool to call it San Fran, which uh-huh. um, I will say, when I first moved here, I was very guilty of um, <laughs> calling it San Fran. That's also not cool. Right. So we did a story about why why this hate for Frisco. Where does it come from? What does it stem from? And ultimately, we learned that Frisco at one point was a very um, – it, it really indicated kind of what social class you were from. And Frisco was used by people who tended to, like, work at ports, tended to have more blue-collar jobs, and kind of white-collar people and people who saw themselves as, like, the city's elite decided that because the blue-collar people were using Frisco, they would choose not to. That it was kind of a dirty-sounding word. It wasn't sophisticated. It didn't, you know, stand up to this vision of the city that they had. So I remember going into the story thinking, like, oh, yeah, don't call it Frisco. I've always heard that. Like, I I would never call it Frisco. But now I'm like, you know what? Like, it's 2021. Um, I think the time to, you know, divide um, things along class lines is behind us. And I think if you want to call it Frisco, you absolutely should. So I will now call it Frisco from time to time, and I do it very proudly. That's really that's really great. I agree with you. I I told I had no idea why people didn't like Frisco, but now now that I know, what about the San Fran? Why are people against San Fran? That one, you know, no one's asked that question. So why <laughs> don't you head we to bigcurious.org? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Well, Olivia, this has really been great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Oh my gosh, it's been such a pleasure, Satirius. Thank you. Olivia Allen Price hosts the Bay Curious podcast online at baycurious.org. Olivia tweets at O. Allen Price. As always, we'll have links to all the places we talked about on today's episode and lots more on our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. We hope you enjoyed this episode and get a chance to hit the road soon. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find our show on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. And please check our website for the latest in the way of state travel advisories. It's visitcalifornia.com. California.